the high cost of affordable housing, what's in your water in Broward County, and extending temporary immigration protections for some. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Tim Paget is off this week. Housing affordability is a persistent and pricey problem. The city of Miami is spending millions of dollars on a half dozen homes. You have to have the biggest bang for your buck, you see. And I understand that this is uh, the biggest bang for the buck. Plus, Broward County finds forever chemicals in its water. People who drink water need to understand that there's toxic chemicals in the water. How can you protect yourself from what's coming out of your faucet? And the United States extends temporary protections for Venezuelans. It's all ahead on the South Florida Roundup next here on WLRN. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Tim Paget is off this week. Finding a home for less than a half million dollars is nearly impossible in South Florida's housing market today. But the city of Miami thinks it has a solution for home buyers. The city is building single-family homes on publicly owned land as part of a $100 million effort to create more affordable housing, boost supply, create more housing. Uh, there's a catch. The buyers are chosen through a lottery. The goal is to sell these new homes to lucky residents at $300,000 each, about half of what a median single-family home is priced at in Miami-Dade County. That's a great deal, right? $300,000 in this market. But it's also a substantial loss for taxpayers once the cost of the land and the development is factored in. It's estimated that the six homes that are planned in the city's 4th district will cost Miami City taxpayers over $4 million dollars for six homes. Experts say the city is missing a bigger picture when it comes to affordable housing. Some saying public developers should think big, not small. So we want to hear from you on this Friday in the South Florida Roundup Live. How would your tax dollars be used? How should your tax dollars be used to address housing affordability in your community? Should the city of Miami or the town you live in be focused on single-family homes to solve the affordability issues or higher density developments. Call us now. Phones are open live on this Friday, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Housing affordability in South Florida back on our agenda here on the South Florida Roundup. You can also send us a tweet at WLRN on X. All right, joining us now, WLRN investigative reporter Danny Rivera, who uncovered this effort, building a home, Danny, for almost $600,000, selling it for half that amount in Miami. What a bargain. What a Miami bargain. How how, how did this happen? <laughs> uh, th- thanks for asking. Um, I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, this came down to a vote that was, you know, a lot of people didn't pay atten- a whole lot of attention to it. Yeah. It was just before the COVID-19 pandemic. So even if people were paying attention, it quickly faded into the background but in early 2020 there was a vote taken by the miami city commission about what to do with this 400 million dollar bond called the 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 miami forever bond that Mm -hmm. was passed by taxpayers in 2017 like what to do with it specifically like what to do with the affordable housing component there which was how much money of the bond money a hundred million dollars not chump change no so the the city hired researchers at FIU to come up with a master plan for affordable housing. They said, this is the plan to move the city of Miami forward. Um, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez was backing it. Um, They presented 
all this information to the commission and the commissioners did not like what they what they heard because at, at the end of it it would have taken some of the decision making power away from elected officials mm. and created an independent agency within the federal government sorry within the city government yeah. that would have made decisions about where to put this money to get the most bang for your buck which developments to support and whatnot commissioners decided we don't want that we don't want anyone else making this the decisions we're going to make the decisions and so they basically took that money for themselves and what happened in district four is commissioner manolo reyes decided well this is what he wants to do in his district he wants to build these six houses using two and a half million of of, of that money which is 2.5 percent of that money mm-hmm. um you know plus the cost of the land and whatnot it comes out to 4.1 million for six houses so these six homes uh, uh had been privately owned or on property that was privately owned is that right it, it used the yeah the land used to be privately owned on on three of the the lots where where these houses are being built I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's one of those head-scratching government things where it just doesn't make sense on paper. The city bought the land from families, essentially. And on three of those properties, there were houses on them. Standing homes that people had been living in. Standing homes that people had been living in. And the city bought it, saying that they wanted to convert it into parkland, knocked down the homes, and then later decided, we're going to build a new house put a house back on where a house had been. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they paid market rate for these pieces of land and for, for the three with homes on it and the other pieces Cor- of land. Correct. Right. Um, you know, over 300,000, you know, and, and they, they bought some of those houses when prices were cheaper yeah. than, than now, but they, it was, it's <laughs> right. government pro- right. publicly owned plots of land. So... So, so how how did you talk about a head scratcher on paper? It's also a head scratcher in terms of the math here, right? Right. The intent of creating affordable housing, uh, uh, few people are going to be against that. But is this it, it, how does this make financial sense? As you spoke to experts and you spoke to city commissioners, you spoke to to the commissioner in this district. How does how does the this make sense? How does the math work? It doesn't. I mean, it, it doesn't. The, the math does not work. Um, the, the county, just to, to take an example of, of how things work, the county has a similar program where they take publicly owned land that's zoned for single family houses and they give it to nonprofits like Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. So they provide the land, Habitat for Humanity, for example, develops a house and then they sell it for cheap. Mm-hmm. The, the difference is the city of Miami said, we're going to take this land that's publicly owned and we're going to build it. The government's going to build it. The taxpayers are going to foot the bill and then and then we're going to sell it. The city becoming a developer is actually a major change. I mean, the city is not a developer. Call it mission creep in yeah, the nonprofit it, world. The, right? c- the city does not do development projects. Now, some people argue the city should do development projects. Right, right for multifamily housing so you can get more families in and you're going to help house more people and you can maybe put it into a revolving fund and then you know create the kind of ecosystem where you can develop more but 
the city becoming a builder it's up till now is it doesn't really happen and it it to answer your question, it does not make sense mathematically. We're talking about uh, housing affordability uh, with our investigative reporter here at WLR and Danny Rivera, who has uh, looked at the Miami Forever bond, the $100 million that devoters approved uh, among hundreds of millions of other dollars, but that was designed for housing affordability projects in the city of Miami. Uh, you can uh, join our conversation, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Ian has been listening in from Miami. Ian, go ahead. You're on the radio. Hi. I'm going to scrap my original comment and just ask, uh, has anyone from the county said anything about this? Because I think it's foolish to think that, you know, these housing stocks, you know, when you're shopping, when you're looking for a place to live, you don't look at these arbitrary lines of where all the cities are. Um, has the county said anything about this? Because, I mean, I know you shouldn't attribute... Uh, malice is something that could be incompetence, but this just seems like it's just too stupid. Thanks. Ian, appreciate that. Th- yeah. th- what you, has Ian. been the response, um, Danny? No, the, the county has, has not weighed in. It, frankly, it's not their jurisdiction. Right. Um, this is City of Miami borders. This is City of Miami bond that's been issued. So the, the you know, the impetus is really wholly on... City Hall, not county hall. On City Hall, and specifically on... Commissioner Manolo Reyes, who who is the district for commissioner, I talked to him. He said he looked at his district. He looked at what the needs are. And he told me this is the best bang for the buck. He said, you know, most of his district is single family only. So when he thought of what he could do for his district, this is what could be done. I, I will say, though, that in a lot of ways from experts I talked to is the problem. The single-family home focus. Well, well, low density. The the focus on giving each commissioner in each district the ability to decide these things on their own instead of thinking, okay, what is the best thing for the entire city? Where can we put the most homes for the smallest amount of money? And and you know, giving you know twenty million dollars in in affordable housing right. funds basically to be decided by one person. Yeah, it leads to I don't think it's so much mission creep, but it, it he's working, he argues with what he has. And the experts say, well, what you have in your district, that's not the solution. Right. It ends at the political boundary for that district. Former city commissioner in Miami, Ken Russell, was the only commissioner at the time who supported that master plan that you spoke about, Danny, during that meeting in 2020. Here's what he had to say about the way the $100 million bond is being used. $100 million seems like a lot, but it's not. It can be squandered really fast in a, in a city of our size with the affordable housing needs that we have. The greatest risk is that the money's gone in a couple of years and you have one or two projects um, that don't really affect the need. Single-family home ownership is, you know, a need, but it's not the most efficient way that we can meet the crisis right now. 800-743-WLRN, talking about uh, housing affordability and uh, one effort in one district, in one city, but we want to hear from uh, all around South Florida. It's an issue certainly for every community. 800-743-WLRN. We've got Dean listening in from Miramar. Dean, go ahead. You're on the radio. Hey, how you doing? Um, you know, I do appreciate the idea of building affordable housing. It's definitely as much needed. I do not think the way that they're executing it is the best path to go because you're you're going to over you're going to overpay for building right now. I think they should take that grant money and give each individual maybe a quarter million dollars, $300,000 out the grant 
they can take a loan for the rest. Therefore, it drops the housing costs. And in doing that, not only are you stimulating the economy, but you got mm. bank lending, uh, you got people, uh, you know, having home ownership, and you're not really putting a big burden on taxpayers. And instead of doing, you know, six homes, you can do triple four times as much. Yeah. And I just think that that's uh, kind of squandering it. Now, I have my, my business, a cereal box store. I purchased from China. I purchased from L.A. I purchased from different places. I would never pay triple just to sell something and lose profit. They can take that land in Miami and build something else that'll be more profitable and yeah. good for our economy. I mean, that's just my two cents. Dean, it's your two cents. But interesting concept there, Dean. I appreciate you uh, uh, joining us here and adding those two cents to our conversation. Um, we should point out it's uh, this money is not a grant. This is tax money. This is right. money that voters said, yes, we will raise our own taxes to go out in the market and borrow this money to go do something with it. Right. And... Um, and and right thank thank you for the call dean um something that i should mention is when the f when fiu did that study for the affordable housing master plan i mean one of the really shocking findings that they had is that miami is at the rock bottom for home ownership in in um the country the city of miami in the terms city of the of percentage miami, of owner occupied homes only 30% of homes in the city of miami are owner occupied hmm. That is because the cost of housing is too high. People can't, you know, the wages it's don't, don't, don't support it. You far can't, ahead from income. You, you, you can't, you can't get the down payment for it. So when you talk to experts about how do you alleviate this situation, the primary thing is, you know, it's it's almost a chicken and egg thing. We want ownership, yeah. But in order to get ownership, the experts say you need to focus on the rental market. The rental market needs to come down. You need you need more supply so people pay less in rent so they can save. Right, right. If, you, if they can't save, they're never going to own. So, so Danny, the focus I, is on rentals. And, and, and uh, I saw a report just yesterday on Thursday from the uh, Miami Association of Realtors citing another study that uh, Miami is home to the largest pipeline of apartments that are due to come to the market in 2024. And and some of my sources in real estate have been whispering in my ears, you know, a bit worried about uh, uh, really condominium prices, about a lot of this coming to it's, market next year. It's Let me tell you, it's bad for investors. Sure. I mean, there, there is so much construction happening in all of Miami-Dade County, really all of South Florida. All of South, look at Broward, Palm Beach, it, yeah. It is it is a massive amount yeah. of supply that's happening. And I, I, I should mention, the city of Miami is doing some of the things that experts say that they are doing. Um, they are chipping in money to, um, to multifamily developments, which comes with some strings attached that, you know, the there's income caps for people that can get in there so that it's like, quote unquote, affordable or workforce. You know, there's an argument about is that really affordable? But the the yeah. the fact is, there there is a lot in the pipeline at the city and the county level. Mm -hmm. There's there there's public ten, tens of tens of thousands of you know units that are publicly funded to some degree, right? Which will have some strings attached that are in the pipeline now. Yeah. Uh, talking about housing affordability, let's see. Harry has been listening in. Harry, I think you're in Hollywood. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Oh, thank you. This is Gary uh, from Hollywood. Gary, sorry about uh, that. Go ahead. No problem. 
I uh, I disagree with the, uh, the what the what Miami's trying to do with uh, providing house uh, what, six houses for, for a crazy price. I, I just don't think that's that's viable. Uh, it, it's uh, it starts something very suspicious. It just just doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, there's there's projects available on the market now for uh, for rental housing, which I think is your answer to your immediate answer to the problem. You're not going to change. We're not going to change the pricing. That's a free market system. Uh, if somebody is ready, willing, and able to to, to pay six hundred, seven hundred thousand for a house, well. They should be allowed to do it and get it. Harry, uh, or the stuff. thanks for uh, lending your voice there from Hollywood. Appreciate it. Uh, about the market price here versus the price of these uh, developed homes, Danny, what risks does the city face by perhaps continuing this type of project, this type of focus on single-family home development uh, over a multifamily, over higher density development. Right. I mean, one thing I do want to make clear is, uh, as I just mentioned, the the city is starting to invest in some some larger properties for multifamily development, which will be rentals, you know, with caps on how much percent someone would pay for rent and whatnot. They are doing a lot of that. But the, the reality is the Miami Forever bond passed six years ago, and they've spent only about half of that money. Now, some people I've talked to say, like, this is crazy. We are in a real crisis right now. And the, the, the point of the suggested, the, the, the affordable housing master plan that was proposed is create this independent body that would move on it quickly. That would, that would yeah. in, in put money in it and in, in invest in, in developments <laughs> with strings attached, yeah. get it out quickly, you know, into the world. Yeah. There's still 45% of that money that is yet to be allocated. The decisions have not been made as to where that money goes. Um, you know, you, you, some people would say like it's moving too slowly. I mean, part of the point in a, in a way of doing this kind of reporting is to inform people and also to hopefully allow the decision makers or the commissioners themselves to actually think about it. Yeah. I mean, th- what are you doing with this money? Yeah. This is money that's supposed to be going to affordable housing, housing the most amount of people you can with the little money you have. And, you know, a lot of it's yet to be determined. Yeah, the return on investment in a very fast market like Miami real estate. And here we are now six years after voters approved this borrowing to address affordable housing. Great reporting, Danny. Really appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you, Tom. Terrific stuff. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, uh, we're going to talk about water, toxic Forever chemicals found in water in Broward County and other parts of South Florida. So how can we protect ourselves from what's coming out of our faucets? It's next on the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. Tim Paget is off this week. Life in South Florida is surrounded by water, canals, the ocean, the Everglades, and what we may take for granted beneath our feet, our aquifers. 
This is where our drinking water comes from. And Mark Bogan wanted to know if water in Broward County included PFAS chemicals. Now, you may have heard of this before. Forever chemicals, that's the more common nickname for PFAS chemicals. It's a whole group of chemicals with industrial and consumer use. They resist heat and stains, grease and oil, among other things. And they've been linked to health problems, including cancer. So he decided to test some of the water in Broward County. And this week, he announced what he found. Now, he's the District 2 Commissioner of Broward County. Commissioner, welcome back to the South Florida Roundup. We appreciate your time today. You tested two water plants in Broward County and water in six cities for these PFAS chemicals. What did you find? So actually, I also tested six bottled waters. Just so you know, besides the six bottled waters, we tested six city, six cities and two water plants. And what we found was that all of them um, exceeded the, hopefully the recommended EPA requirement. Right now, EPA has not voted yet to put a number to it, but they're talking about that water plants should not have any more than the number four. It's, it's actually called four parts per trillion, but no more than the number four of this toxic chemical. And all the water plants we tested have exceed that. Substantially exceed that, right? Uh, exponentially exceed that level. Yeah, some more, some less. I mean, the county, for example, has two water plants. In Broward County, we have 23 water districts, and plus the two county water plants. So our two county water plants were tested. One number came out to 100, the other came out to 80. And, and, and the number that we're looking to do is get it down to four. So people who drink water need to understand that there's toxic chemicals in the water that can be harmful. They're called forever chemicals. And um, and reverse osmosis can get these chemicals mostly out. I want to ask you about the process to address this. But as you mentioned, high levels compared to where the EPA has talked about having some kind of uh, concern. But there is no standard. There's no standard right now for uh, PFAS chemicals uh, in a municipal and a public water supply, correct? I, I believe the EPA has come out in the past saying it should be at or below, I, I think the number is either 70 or 90. So, so I think it's 70, according to the Department of Environmental Protection in Florida. That's It's the recommendation. Um, and so are any of the levels you found in violation? Not, well, our county water plant, if it's 100, they're in violation of the 70. But, and, and the other one, 80, is in violation. But all the six cities I tested, out of, Broward has 31 cities, and so I tested six of them, and all six of them are in compliance with the, with the current standard. But the future standard, they're all going to need to do something. And quite frankly, people need to understand this is not about Broward County. PFAS is in water throughout the country. PFAS is in the environment. Uh, this toxic chemical is everywhere. And it's a shame they've waited this long to start addressing. Are you concerned that at the two water treatment plants you tested that it is out of compliance, that that it's beyond the allowed contamination for these chemicals as designated by the state? Absolutely. And the county has acted quickly. They're hiring consultants to determine what needs to be retrofitted, what needs to be changed to bring these numbers down. In the meantime, really the most important message that I want to get out is there's something people can do. Uh, you know, if they want to drink safe water, right now we tested six different bottled waters. All of them came up at a lab of having no PFAS trace. 
So whether it was Dasani, Aquafina, Smart Water, Core Hydration, uh, one called Essential, and then Zephyr Hills, all came up with, with, with no trace. But if someone says, well, I want to do it in my home, they could also put a reverse osmosis system in their sink, by their kitchen, to try to get these chemicals out. Water out of the tap usually is the uh, most economic option for people to stay hydrated, right? Uh, not water from, not bottled water from the grocery store or putting in a reverse osmosis system. So what kind of additional cost could be involved if someone's listening to this saying, I, I, I don't want any PFAS in the water that me or my family are consuming? If somebody says, I don't want any PFAS, I would say, um, go to your local store, uh, you know, whether it be Home Depot or some other store that sells a reverse osmosis system, and they have small systems you can put in. And by the way, these this reverse osmosis will take out other chemicals because there's other chemicals in our drinking water that nobody's really talked about. Is there so, any county subsidy for this reverse osmosis system until the county supply gets addressed? No. There's no county subsidy. But are you also saying then that the county water supply, at least from these two water treatments, is unsafe to drink? No. I mean, you know, look, if you want to go that far, I would say every water system is unsafe to drink because they all have PFAS in it. So if, if PFAS is a toxic chemical, which it is, and a PFAS is a forever chemical, which it is, then whether... Um, I'm looking at Coconut Creek has 61.8 or or the county is 80. No matter any water treatment plant, I mean, anywhere you drink, it's going to be unsafe if you want to call it because it has PFAS in it. Um, And so we just don't know how much our bodies can take of PFAS before it causes illness, disease or cancer. PFAS contamination does not appear in the annual water quality report from Broward County Water, should it? I think any chemical that is in the water that can cause health issues should be uh, should be public. And so people have asked me, why am I talking about this? Why? You know, the public needs to know what is going on and transparency is important. And so... Um, you know, but there's a but the great thing is that there's a there's an immediate solution today by drinking bottled water, and then there's also another immediate solution by getting a small, um, you know, a reverse osmosis system put in your put in your kitchen or your sink somewhere of whatever you're drinking. But you know, for for the majority of Broward County residents, the majority perhaps of residents in District Two, your district, they, they may not be able to afford that with with housing costs, insurance costs, transportation, gas at four dollars a gallon. You're right. You're right. Uh, you know, don't know what to say. All I could say is, is that as my job as an elected official, I need, I think the public needs to know and we need to have answers. So the answers are the county, at least the county. I don't know what these other 23 water districts are doing. The thing that bothered me was some of them, well, we'll wait till next year when we're going to do something next year. And, and it's really troubling to hear that. Why wait till next year when they could do, let's do something now but I don't control those 23 water districts. I think the public can put pressure on their city officials. Remember, this is people need to talk to their city officials about this. Uh, I'm in the county level and say, hey, we need to do something now about, about PFAS and getting, uh, getting it cleaned out. What is a systemic way to address this beyond bottled water and a home reverse osmosis system? The total system cost in Broward County for Water is uh, and wastewater is about 170 million dollars this year in the budget. 
Um, what, what, what does a systemic solution look like? You know, it's, it's pretty simple in my mind. It just costs a lot of money. It's, it's getting a reverse osmosis system throughout the entire water. And it's going to be 150 to maybe $200 million, depending on the water district, uh, you know, the cost. And then, you know, there's hopes that maybe the federal government will come in and help defray those costs. And what about going after some of those uh, chemical manufacturers that are behind the PFAS chemicals originally? Would you support that kind of uh, civil action? That's so funny that you said that because somebody asked me, how did you find out about this? And the way I found out about it was I've been a lawyer for 40 years and I got contacted by a law firm out of state, not even in Florida, that said to me, hey, we're suing the manufacturer of this. Do you think uh, the city or county would like to join? And I didn't even understand what's PFAS. Last year at this time, I had no clue what PFAS was. And most people in this country have no clue what it is and what it does. And so um, that's where I, I learned about it. And so do you expect to come back to your fellow commissioners maybe in a couple of months with the, the a possibility of joining some kind of civil action? I, I, I do expect it. And I found out that some cities already are uh, in, in Florida and South Florida are already involved in litigation. That's Broward County District 2 Commissioner Mark Bogan. Now, Coral Springs and Pompano Beach sued 3M this summer. Delray Beach and Plantation filed lawsuits earlier uh, seeking to have the company clean up areas where firefighters trained using materials that included PFAS chemicals. We want to hear from you and our phones are open live on this Friday afternoon. Are you concerned about these so-called forever chemicals in your drinking water? How are you avoiding them? What do you think about the commissioner's ideas of bottled water reverse osmosis uh, for your home water? Give us a call, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Let's talk more about PFAS chemicals, their effect on us, where they come from, our environment, and in our drinking water supplies, and also how to avoid them. Natalia Sores Kinete is along with us now, professor, assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry at Florida International University. Professor, thanks for your time. Uh, you heard the commissioner there talk about every water system with PFAS chemicals is unsafe to drink. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so um, hope you can hear me well. Loud um, and clear. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so I I do agree that, you know, most of the water system, you know, is not surprising that you're going to find those, um, those chemicals, you know, um, even though like there's really not a lot enough studies yet, like, you know, actually part of my group at FIU, we have been, um, you know, collecting also tap waters and um, and trying to a little bit understand better, like the currents, what are the distribution, the mm -hmm. faith, and and we're trying to, um, you know, identify all those sources of PFAS that are getting to the municipal water system, you know. Uh, but um, I was gonna say, like, I wouldn't be surprised with the results. We yeah. we actually had some study that was conducted in two thousand twenty one that we collected not only from Broward County, but we collected also uh, tap water samples from, uh, you know, uh, Miami-Dade and Palm Beach, you know, some cities. And um, what did you find? Did you find PFAS chemicals in those samples? We did. Yes, mm. we did. <laughs> so you, Yeah, we did, actually. Is and, it, professor, yeah. is it fair to say if you're drinking tap water in South Florida, you're probably consuming some level of PFAS forever chemicals? Is that accurate? Yeah, I wasn't going to say that that's only a South Florida issue. That is actually a global issue, not only even the U.S., you know, most of, 
you know, all of us are being uh, exposed to those chemicals there, you know, like, I think like some of the things that you, you mentioned be, before, like they are present in so many household and industrial products, right. you know, like non uh, nonstick cookware, water resistant clothes, food packaging, personal care products, like, you know, cosmetics, um, and, and on top also from uh, firefighting farms formulation. So is the that's one of the major issues like you know they're presenting so many different things that um is really hard to avoid not getting them into a water so uh, how do we minimize or even avoid consuming pfas yeah. chemicals yeah yeah i was going to i was going to say like just complementing what the commissar said before like uh, yes rumor, uh, uh reverse osmosis and as well as activated carbon like filters with activated carbon they have shown to you know reduce concentration of pfas so we can re, you know reduce overall pfas exposure but i had to highlight that it doesn't really remove all sort of pfas i think like hmm. We, I think like most people always talk about PFOA and PFOS, which I think like that's the one that we see in the guidelines. As it was mentioned before, actually the 70 nanograms per liter, that was the health absorbed guideline that was set before, which has been recently changed to four nanograms per liter. That's levels are not reinforced right now in Florida. Yeah, let me just but step in there. Some, let me interrupt yeah. you just for a second because I want to emphasize that, right? So the EPA standard for these PFAS chemicals had been, and correct me where I'm wrong here, I'm only yes. the son of a chemistry teacher. <laughs> I'm a journalist. <laughs> but it was 70 parts per trillion. That was the old uh, 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 threshold, right? For these PFAS yeah, that chemicals? Was a, okay. Yeah, that was a, yeah, that's the world, like, uh, health absorber guidelines. Okay. And, and, and so, and now the goal, been... now the goal is uh, to get down to four parts per trillion, from 70 yeah. to four. And what Commissioner Bogan found in his tests at two of the water treatment plants in Broward County, 80 parts per trillion and 100 parts per trillion. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really concerned. I mean, I um, like I was going to say, I can talk. I, I cannot talk about the his research. Sure, and understood. He was found. But yeah. like I can talk about like what we have uh, done before. And I was going to say, like, you know, in several cities in Broward County, we did find like, you know, among the highest uh, some of PFAS. We mm -hmm. have been monitoring about 30 PFAS and more recently 40, a total of 40 uh, PFAS. Um, and these are 40, we have found uh, also. 40 wells that you've been monitoring with your team? No, no, no. no. 40. No, no. It's 40 different types of compounds. So like, I see. I think like that was not very maybe emphasized. So. We know that there are more than 10,000 different chemicals yeah. from the same class yeah. of PFAS. So uh, recently, I mean, currently we are actually monitoring 40 different PFAS. In the, in the study that has published before, we were monitoring 30 of those yeah. compounds, so which include the PFOS and PFOA, to which we have guidelines yeah. for. But not most of them we don't really have any um you know guidance on what it should be the maximum hmm. amount concentration in our drinking water that would protect us from any health effect uh professor kanete stick with us here uh a chemistry professor at florida international university talking about forever chemicals in the drinking water in south florida we've got uh, doug listening in from fort lauderdale go ahead doug you're on the radio yeah i can believe it was hold on Hello? Doug, you're up. You're on the radio. We're live on this Friday. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, you know, it's great to drink water, but what about showering? 
Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, what about uh, especially hot water? You yeah, know, hot water. You get the steam, and you get the. Uh, you yeah. know, it gets in your pores. Yeah, Professor, what about this? If we're not directly consuming water by swallowing it, if we're just encountering it on our, on our skins or or through steam, is is uh, do what do we know about uh, contamination or or concerns there? Yes, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So what I was gonna say is that we don't really have much information on the different exposure, like most of the exposure mechanisms that has been uh, studied through injection. So either through drinking water um, consumption or for example, through food injection as well. So mm -hmm. they, these compounds have been um, seen to accumulate in food, but like understanding like dermal contact or inhalation, we know that we can find them in, in the air as well. But uh, that's not something that's really, I mean, we cannot really understand yet or hasn't been enough studies okay. yet to actually understand same for how like, this process. Same yeah, for like you know. washing dishes with tap water or just in a dishwasher? Yeah, the, yeah, the same, yeah that's what I was going to say, the yeah. same thing. Okay. I don't think like this kind of contact, like by washing or recreational use uh, from PFAS, is that um, an exposure mechanism that is completely understood, to be honest. And, and what about just PFAS in fresh water? or even ocean water for those of us who are in the ocean. Do, do we know, is there any monitoring? Is there any studies going on around those? Yeah, so, yeah, so that's what I was gonna say. Like another, uh, besides tap water, we actually have been looking at, you know, um, Biscayne Bay um, surface water and canals as well that discharge in Biscayne Bay. And we have found also those chemicals um, in, in, the, in the, in you know, in the, um, in the water and as well as in oysters, they have been accumulating in oysters as well. So we have even actually identified some of the major canals that lead to Biscayne Bay that has been shown like the wow. highest levels and we're trying to understand a little bit more. What, what about any impact on wildlife, on our marine life? Any, any uh, conclusions or any research happening there? Yeah, so that's, that's what I was gonna say. Like we, uh, there's something that, <laughs> We are also uh, been looking at, you know, all of those different effects that how they can accumulate. We know they're accumulating in marine life. For example, some of the oysters that has the highest concentration uh, from the different locations. We collected also oysters from uh, Tampa Bay, but we found the highest levels in Biscayne Bay. Hmm. So we saw that the, you know, the shell thickness of, from the oysters were like they were thinner. Uh, than the other ones yeah. that could be like one of the facts but like we have we don't really uh, know about all the possible effects but I was going to say that uh, similar to what has seen uh, to humans before that could be yeah. um, do you drink nothing but bottled human. water professor sorry do you drink any any do you drink nothing but bottled water do you drink any any water out of the faucet yeah, so actually, we that's what I was going to say. Like, I think, like, the commissioner, uh, the commissioner said, like, about uh, filtering the water. And we we do it at home, too. So we have, wow. like, this activator carbon, not a reverse osmosis, actually. But again, it doesn't remove all of them. I think, right. like, one of the things that I wanted to say as well for people that are really concerned, there are, like, some small things that people can start pay attention to and reduce, like, you know, you should, I mean, if you haven't done yet, get rid of all the Teflon cookwares, for example, you know, start, you know, reducing consumption from all those like fast food with food, uh, this food packaging, like, you know, that it, like for popcorn as well. And, you know, like some people might not know that, but like 
the paper straw they actually have shown to have PFAS as paper well. straws do yes they have oh boy that's why that's why the you know like the they're more resistance right yeah um well, the Professor, I, 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 years ago we went all cast iron in the Hudson household. So uh, you know, those <laughs> it, it it helps with a little bit of weight resistance when you're having to do the dishes, but uh, no nonstick there uh, for yeah, us. And 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 other things like you know, like for example, carpet. So like if you if you have those three to carpet, right, like that you're gonna drop something, uh, drop water or any liquid, and you have seen like there's some carpet when they trip. So when they are treated, then you don't really like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't absorb, right? Yeah, right. So the same thing with like water repellent, clothing, cosmetics that like you know that everybody wanted to use yeah. those that like, you're gonna take like you're gonna last the whole day. So I think like that people have to start like with small things because those chemicals are also coming from from domestic wastewater. Yeah. you know we have to leave it there, that. Professor. But some really good tips there for consumers uh, to take away. Uh, Natalia Sores Canete, uh, Professor of uh, chemistry at Florida International University. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. South Florida Roundup will continue with a big change for Venezuelan immigrants, an extension to their protected status. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Stick with us. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Tim Padgett is off this week. An estimated half million people become eligible this week to be protected from being deported from the United States, including about 30,000 here in South Florida. The Biden administration announced it will extend temporary protected status for Venezuelans who are already in the United States by the end of July. The previous deadline had been those here by early March. The reason for extending the deadline was, quote, extraordinary and temporary conditions in Venezuela, according to the Department of Homeland Security. So what does this TPS extension mean for our community in South Florida, for the diaspora here, for our economy? Do you know someone affected? What do you think about the use of temporary protected status as an immigration policy? 800-743-WLRN, our live phone number on this Friday, 800-743-9576. Maureen Parras is with us now, a councilwoman in the city of Doral and an immigration attorney. Maureen, welcome. Thanks for coming into the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you all. So let's start with what is TPS, if those are uh, folks are unaware of temporary protected status. What does that provide people? Yeah, so TPS is actually a program that was started in the 90s. And it is determined, the designation is determined by the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. In this case, as we heard yesterday, it was from Secretary Mayorkas. And what it does is it provides temporary protection to individuals um, that are in the country of that's facing some sort of extraordinary circumstance where it is not safe for them to return. And that evaluation or analysis is done again by the by DHS and that's when they determine whether, you know, a designation should be made or not. And uh, the designation had been for Venezuelans who arrived in the United States by March 8th were eligible for this temporary protected status this week that was extended to uh, the end of July. That's correct. What's your understanding of why that extension was was given? Yeah, so part of the process for extending TPS is that the DHS will look at the country conditions and they will determine whether it's safe for these individuals to return to their home country. But has anything materially changed in Venezuela from March to here in September? Honestly, no. There's an ongoing humanitarian crisis. There's 
a lot of instability. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of um, things that make it very, very unreasonable and also difficult for these individuals to return. Now, what actually happened yesterday was not only was the first designation, which occurred, as you mentioned, in March of 2021, that was extended, but there was also a redesignation, meaning they extended the applicability of TPS and the ability for individuals to apply for TPS to people, Venezuelans in this case, um, that entered the U.S. on or before July 31st of this year, 2023, to apply. That didn't exist. So usually for TPS, you have to apply and you have to have been in the U.S. for the first designation. Mm -hmm. And so as we all know, thousands of Venezuelans have come into the country since the first designation. And that's what I wanted to ask about, whether or not, I mean, certainly the Department of Homeland Security points to conditions in Venezuela for this extension, but there's also domestic uh, pressures that led to the administration extending temporary protected status. Well, you know, there's a lot of Venezuelans that are here that have already been contributing to our community, our economies. I think there was a need for this temporary protection, not only because it protects individuals that are fleeing countries like Venezuela, but it also provides them some stability. It provides them with the ability to um, apply for work authorization and therefore contribute to their communities, which, as we all know, there's a shortage of workers. And so I think it's it was it was a good thing to do. It was beneficial. Um, and communities like ours, like Doral, right. where I represent, are going to absolutely benefit from this. Yeah, let me ask what you've heard from the diaspora community in, in Doral about this extension. Uh, there's there's hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans affected by this in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's tens of thousands affected here in South Florida. Yeah, this is absolutely welcome news. And it's news that I think um, is great. Again, you know, we have a lot of residents from Venezuela. In fact, we are the city with the largest Venezuelan population. We had, and you know, in my years of serving Doral, the Doral community as an immigration lawyer, um, and I've I've done that for over seven years. Right. I've I've had a lot of clients and residents that needed something like this to continue. Uh, their work in our community. There has been domestic pressure, particularly from the mayor of New York on the Biden administration because of the migrant uh, situation that has continued over the past many months with hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans in the New York area. Tens of thousands, as I mentioned, in, in our community. In, as, as a leader in Doral, has the city seen its services uh, pressured by uh, more immigration from Venezuela over the past, say, six months or so covered by this extension of TPS announced this week? Well, I can tell you that as a councilwoman, I think that we were not receiving any sort of negative pressure. I think it is actually helpful to our community because we have these folks that are already part of it, part of our city that are contributing, that have already integrated. And this is also a way for them to really fully contribute to the fullest extent that they can. And in fact, you know, we were one of the cities that passed a resolution in support of the Venez- the proposal for the Venezuelan Adjustment Act, which mm-hmm. would bring potentially uh, permanent residency status right. to uh, Venezuelans, you know, across the yeah, U.S. Yeah, similar to the Cuban Readjustment Act, for Correct. instance. But but why do you think a, a small community like Doral, which is uh, has a large diaspora population, has been able to absorb even even the tens of thousands of uh, of, of Venezuelan migrants over the past couple of months, whereas a, a much larger city like New York has had some trouble? 
Well, I think that it all depends on the the, pro, the programming that we have available. Like, for example, in Doral, we also have the organization that I work for, which is also, it's called Church World Service. And some of their focus is to um, create programs where they can receive immigrants and train them for job uh, job training, job preparation, you know, enroll them in children in school and really focus on um, a, a way to really integrate them and make them part of the community. And I think that's what's happened. The residents that we have in our city are contributing. Mm. They're investing. They're buying, you know, properties. They're, they have businesses. And so what we're really seeing is people that are working, that are progressing. As an immigration attorney, do you have any clients that have called you in the last 24, 36 hours with this announcement saying, let's get ready, let's go ahead and file for this temporary protected Absolutely. status? You are. Yes, and what yes. kind of timeline are you telling them to expect? Well, you know, right now we're waiting for the Federal Register notice to be um, released. That's and when it makes it official. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also going to give us some guidelines and instructions on how you can apply for TPS. The announcement said that if you have a TPS or a work permit application pending from the first designation that you don't have to apply. So we're just waiting for official instructions from the Federal Register notice. And so, you know, when once we have comes, that, yeah, what do you we think can, the timeline will be then? I, I would say as soon as possible, as soon as practical. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to be done for the TPS application, including show, demonstrating that you have been physically present in the U.S. since the cutoff yeah. date. And so right now what we're telling individuals is to start collecting that information that's going to be necessary. Maureen Porras, a councilwoman in the city of Doral and an immigration attorney. Thanks for sharing both hats here, the legal hat and the uh, elected official hat. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Well, finally, on the roundup this week, pizza night in Miami got a little messy for the GOAT. You see, the soccer giant, Lionel Messi, had been tearing it up, of course, for Inter-Miami, scoring 11 goals in the 11 games he has played in since taking the field back in July. But last Friday night, a week ago, with his team in Atlanta preparing for a match the next day, Messi posted a picture on Instagram of a pizza. Yeah, it was a pizza. It was a pizza from a restaurant in North Beach. Argentine Pizza in Miami, the restaurant's website says. Soccer fans, well, they were, they were upset that Messi wouldn't be on the pitch for the match. Pizza fans, however, much more brutal on social media. They were wound up over his choice for dinner. It was a bed of sliced tomatoes, some onions, some mozzarella cheese we think was hidden in there, and eight whole green olives on the messy pizza. So now, can we talk about pineapple on our pizza? All right. That'll do it this week for the South Florida Roundup. It is produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming and answered the phones for us this week. Thanks, Katie. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Matea Sanchez is our digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. And the vice president of radio is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives engineered our program today. Thanks for listening, calling, and supporting WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Have a terrific and safe weekend. WLRN Public Media.